Welcome back to Scriptures with Mom and Terry. I'm the mom, Linda Weinegger. We are reading this week in Matthew 11 to 12 and Luke 11. And um, just like a couple things, some uh, a thought about receiving revelation. Um, President Nelson said, in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. And he said that in April 2018 General Conference. And then Elder Bednar said something super awesome because um, we need to make sure that we're teaching our kiddos, and I want to make sure that I'm teaching the kids that they are living with the Holy Ghost all the time. And it's more of a notice when you're not close to the Holy Ghost and notice when you're not hearing the Holy Ghost as good uh, because we are always with the Holy Ghost. So President Nelson, or President or Elder David A. Bednar said, I think we focus so much on, I have to recognize it when it comes. Excuse me, we're living in it. It's not like it just comes every once in a while. See, we focus so much on how do I recognize it when it's here? Well, it's always here. If, it, if the covenant promises that we make always have the spirit to be with us, we ought to pay attention to when it leaves or when we decide to ignore, right? So, um, and this is in an all-in podcast on March 16, 2022. And I thought that that was really, really awesome when he said that. I actually did listen to that podcast and it has a lot of good info. In fact, Elder Bednar has a lot of good info on his social media too. I remember sharing something else. But anyways, I love following the apostles. They're the best. And they're getting up with the times and sharing a lot of stuff on social uh, and then that uh, last tip is just like that we need to remember to teach them kind of like line upon line. You know how the spirit isn't always going to be crystal clear and that there's certain things that we can do that will clear up the static. And then there's certain things that we can do that will um, help us uh, recognize the Spirit's voice more in our lives. And so President Boyd K. Packer, he says, as an apostle, I listen how to the same inspiration, or I listen now to the same inspiration coming from the same source in the same way that I listen to as a boy. The signal is much clearer now. And that was in 1979. And I think it's so true. Like it just, as you recognize someone's voice more often, you'll recognize um, you'll be able to recognize when he's speaking to you more often. And so just to help us, um, know that it becomes clear as you continue to practice and as the years go on. Um, but at the beginning, it's a little bit rusty, you know, it's like a radio. You can't, it's not like fully tuned into the station just yet. Cause we're not sure, but also we have to be still to listen to it. Right. Okay. So Matthew 11 to 12, um, we are, going to be talking about Christ speaks of John the Baptist and um, come unto Christ. Then Jesus casts out devils, scribes and Pharisees ask for a sign and Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and then to beware of hypocrisy. Uh, so the Jews and in Christ's day had a choice to make. Would they accept Jesus as the Messiah or would they re- reject him? He invited them to come unto me. Those that would, did would find their burdens lightened and rest to their souls. Those who rejected him would continue to carry their burdens alone. Now, when we get closer to it, I want dad to be able to share what he shared in his lesson to the Sunday school class when he taught. Um, it was actually super cute. Dad and Finn both had 
to share messages. So, uh, so this last Sunday, um, Finn had a talk and then dad had a lesson. So it was kind of fun to, to know that both, uh, both of them had messages that they were sharing. Um, okay. So I'll probably have dad record it and then I can build it into the podcast so that it stays there forever. Um, okay. So Matthew 11, one, and it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. And when now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Um, do you guys remember this one was in the chosen episode where the uh, two of John the Baptist's peeps came to Jesus? Um, and it was pretty cool. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said that why did John send two of his disciples to Jesus to ask if he were the promised Messiah? Any inference that the Baptist was uncertain or doubtful in his own mind as to the identity and mission of the master is totally unwarranted. In reality, the imprisoned Elias and forerunner of our Lord was using this means to persuade his disciples to forsake him and follow Jesus. John knew who Jesus was. The Baptist was not wavering as a reed in the wind, end quote. And I love that because I think sometimes this uh, particular script, these particular scriptures feel like he might be wavering, but I love that um, Elder McConkie said that it was more for them and not for John the Baptist. And it's true because like, how are you supposed to preach from inside a prison? I mean, obviously he did and tried his best but yeah now it's like christ was there like why don't you go ask him yourself you know like go see it what he's all about and go see if what i was saying was true right so then jesus did not merely tell these disciples who he was but he told them to return and tell john everything they have heard and seen and if they saw miracles performed by jesus tell john about those and if they heard jesus teach any doctrines tell john about what he taught um and i think that this I think this must have been like a special thing. Like John probably wanted, he probably felt really alone in there and he probably wanted to make sure that he was going to leave those people with the right um, message and the right uh, person to worship and follow. But it just occurred to me now that he probably also wanted to know if like, Jesus was about doing all his good works, you know? And so, you know, Jesus sent him back to tell John, like, all the fun and awesome things that he was doing. And, like, kind of as a thank you, like, thanks, you did all this stuff and it's worth it because I'm able to teach and preach and bless and heal. And, and it was probably just, like, the last, it was, like, his last request, you know? To, to, to just know that Jesus was out doing his stuff so that John could have that peace of mind knowing that everything that he did was worth it and that he would be able to be ready to leave this, this mortal life. And 
I just think that that is so neat that Jesus told them to make sure that they would go back and tell him and not just like witness for themselves, you know? Um, anyways, I thought, I thought that was really neat. And I love that, that little, that little side storyline, um, experience that they share. And then let's see, verse seven. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? I, a reed shaken with the wind, but what went ye out for to see a man clothed in, in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what we went, but what went ye out for to see a prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. So he was just asking them, like, what are, what did you think? you were going to see when you came out here? Were you thinking that you were going to see some kind of uh, king in soft royal clothes? And this was not John, you know, and, but that he was declaring who John was and that he said that John was more than a prophet. For this is he, John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Oh man, I just get sad because he died. So I just get sad because he never got to really, you know, preach with him and teach with him and stuff. And it was his cousin, you know. So it's just sad for me to think of him like that. Just because, you know, I think of our boys and how they have their cousins and Flora too, you know, and how they get to hang out with them and play with them and have a good relationship with them and and poor john and jesus probably had that time together but then now it was different you know and now he was gonna leave um number 11 verily i say unto you among them that are born of women there hath not risen a greater than john the baptist notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. So this means John was the, an Elias that prepared them for the higher law. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I t- liken this generation? So the Jews of Jesus's day, it is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he hath a devil, the son of man come eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of the publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Okay, Matthew 20, I mean Matthew 11, verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethesda, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
So um, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, but he said, verse 22, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the, at the day of judgment than for you. So the city with most recorded miracles. <sighs> and then, and thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, thou shalt, er, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sidon, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the, in the day of judgment than for thee. At the time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Um, so the wise and lear learned were the scribes. Verse 26, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my father and no man knoweth the son but the father neither knoweth any man the father save the son and he to whomsoever the son will reveal him so there's a joseph smith translation to that one and then come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn of me for i am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so jesus was visiting cities and villages and preaching among them the people had heard his teachings and had seen his miracles they were witnesses of his power teachings and authority they had heard his message for those who had not yet repented he upbraided or scolded or reprimanded them okay in verses 21 to 24, Jesus specifically mentions Cherazin, Bethesda, and Capernaum. Cherazin and Bethesda were both villages near Capernaum. Tyre and Sidon were both cities in Phoenicia, the Gentile country just north of Israel and Samaria. Jesus was rebuking these Jewish villages that were full of Jews who had either personally witnessed or heard many testimonies of the teachings and miracles of Jesus Christ. Um... Per, oh, personally witnessed or heard many testimonies of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, people that they had previously known as blind were no longer blind. People who had could, who could not walk were now walking. The hearts of the Jews had become so complacent that these miracles had been done in other in other lands. The people would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes sackcloth was a coarse material that the poor would wear since they could not afford refined fabrics it was uncomfortable to wear when people were in mourning they would put on sackcloth to outwardly show they were feeling inwardly or how they were feeling inwardly similar to wearing all black in western culture <laughs> which is funny because i love wearing all black um it was uncomfortable uh let's see Jews in mourning 
might also sprinkle ashes upon their heads to show their distress, hence the phrase sackcloth and ashes, which means that the Gentiles, when they were given the chance to be taught Christ's gospel, would have deeply mourned at the thought of their past sins as they were repenting. The Lord specifically, or especially rebuked Capernaum. Capernaum had more recorded miracles of Jesus than any other place, but many, like their scribes and Pharisees, were still clinging to their sins and attitudes for even the wicked in Sodom, who had been destroyed for its wickedness, would have received the gospel before many in Capernaum, which shows how hard-hearted many of the Jews were. Oh, I like that. I didn't even realize that he gave that as an example. That's pretty awesome. Okay, and then about the rest scriptures. Okay, um, about the rest scriptures, we have President Russell M. Nelson. He says in October 2022, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, I grieve for those who leave the church because they feel membership requires too much of them. They have not yet discovered that making and keeping covenants actually makes life easier Each person who makes covenants in baptismal fonts and in temples and keeps them has increased access to the power of Jesus Jesus Christ. Please ponder that stunning truth. The reward for keeping covenants with God is heavenly power, power that strengthens us to withstand our trials, temptations, and heartaches better. This power eases our way. Those who live the higher laws of Jesus Christ have access to his higher power, Thus, covenant keepers are entitled to a special kind of rest that comes to them through their covenantal relationship with God. End quote. Wow, that's that's powerful. That quote is powerful. Um, And yesterday I had a, a meeting for primary presidencies and not at oh primary presidencies and our music leaders by the way I have three music leaders no four music leaders and I had three other presidency members and I was the only one that could go now I don't know what everybody's personal problems are everybody has their own um I, I mean I know some of them but I don't know all of them I was sad that I was the only one that could attend But when I say could attend, I mean that I sacrificed to go because um, originally, so we were going to, yesterday, so many things were happening. We had the, we had a tennis practice. We had a soccer practice for Faust, for tennis and soccer for Faust. And then we had soccer uh, scrimmage for Finn. And then there was also the play at the elementary for a lot of the kids in our, um, in our primary, I guess I should say several, not a lot because not everybody goes to the same school, but anyway, so there was lots of things going on at that exact same time. And actually our presidency meetings used to be Thursday nights and now we switched them to Sunday mornings. Um, but anyway, cause Thursday nights were starting to look crazy. Anyway, so um, there were so many things that we wanted to have happen. And we only have one car and Clark and I were trying to figure out, you know, how to do everything. But we were able to figure out how to 
make everything work because Faust, both tennis practice and soccer practice were canceled. Um, but Finn's scrimmage was still going on. And Finn's scrimmage was the one that was like pretty much at the same time that my meeting was. So because of that, I didn't actually get to go to Finn's scrimmage. I was able to drop him off and then I picked up dad and then I came home and then dad changed and then he went to Finn's scrimmage and Faust and Flora stayed home and then, uh, because it was so cold. And then I went and then I stayed home too because of the meeting. And so dad was the only one that went. Anyway, um, it was so busy, even though the game for, or, or even though the practice for Faust was canceled with tennis, we did decide to have Brendan over for tennis. Anyway, it was just like on, on our court, but it was, it was good. But what I'm saying is it was so busy and I already had another commitment that I didn't even, I didn't want to go. I would rather have actually been outside in the cold watching Finn's scrimmage. Um, because despite my desire for always wanting to be warm, I love supporting our kids in their sports and talents and skills. And I never want to miss out on those. But I did miss out on it. And so it makes me sad that I missed it. But what I wanted to say was, that I actually had to really change my mindset about going to this meeting um, because I I didn't want to go and I felt like it was super inconvenient and I kept thinking, you know, I wouldn't have to go if I didn't have this calling and... um. I would just be able to enjoy my kids' games and things like that. And not have that kind of pressure to to go to a meeting. And sadly, that was how I was looking at it. But then uh, the Spirit was telling me, you know, this is going to be a chance for you to stop, slow down, uh, because this is a really busy weekend and week stop, slow down, and be able to um, recharge, right? If I can just sit there and breathe, I will be better for it. And I was like, okay, fine. I will sit and breathe, and I will make this a better experience for myself than just another to-do item, than just being there again, for another meeting that I don't want to be at. And so I was able to go and I said a prayer beforehand that I would be inspired to know what uh, our primary needs are um, when I go. And especially since I pretty much knew I was going to be the only one. But I mean, I was hoping there would be other people, but most of them told me they couldn't go. Anyway, so I was so grateful that I went afterwards. After I had finished, or on my way home, I was walking home. And I was so grateful that I had gone and that I had changed my attitude. Because 
it was so uplifting and so good that I needed that time to refill. And I got this kind of insight, or I guess another parable um, story or whatever, that when, you know how we talk about filling our buckets? Well, if we fill our bucket, okay, so my bucket, I like to fill it in the morning, you know, maybe with temple time or something. I'll fill my bucket and and it's pretty full, you know, but then throughout the day, it gets emptied, right? Throughout the day. Now, throughout the day, I'm rushing around like a crazy woman. <laughs> and so I definitely need to slow down there. But um, because I'm running around, have you ever tried running around with a bucket full of water? It sloshes around and you get like your water just starts emptying without you even wanting it to because you're just rushing around. And so by the time you finally sit down to stop rushing around, you realize that your bucket is like getting pretty empty and you didn't know that it was getting empty or you didn't realize it was getting emptied because you weren't maybe necessarily um, spending intentional time with people that you love, maybe, you know, and therefore your bucket hasn't been able to just sit right? And if your bucket just sits there, then it doesn't get emptied. And sometimes when your bucket sits there, you get a chance to fill it, right? Anyway, so it was a good realization to know that like, you know what, my bucket was getting pretty empty. And like while I was doing all the running around, And now I was glad that I had sat down to get it refilled, that I was where the Lord needed me to be at that time. And he blessed me for going. Now, I'm not saying that going to the Finn's soccer game would have been like the Lord wouldn't have blessed me for that, but... I do know that I was blessed for going to my meeting and slowing down and going to a meeting that I didn't want to go to because we were able to talk about Jesus and I love talking about Jesus and how we can help those in our ward talk about Jesus more and come unto him more. Um, yeah, so... Anyways, that was my insight. If you keep running around with your bucket and you think it's not going to, and you think the water is going to stay in there, you're wrong. The water will come out and you'll need to sit and refill your bucket at some point. And you want to continue to do that throughout the day so that your bucket can continue to stay full because that bucket needs to empty in so many different people. Because you have a responsibility and a stewardship over so many people. So, there you go. Make sure to stop and refill your bucket. Okay, um, here's where I wanted to share what Dad's lesson was about rest. Because I felt like it was super important um, 
because he had new insight that was different than the standard insight that we normally get from this scripture. So I'm going to pause here and insert dad's commentary. Okay, so now we're going to share what dad shared in his lesson. Um, some insights and what else? <clears throat> Anything else that you learned from teaching your lesson? Okay, go ahead. I haven't even agreed to this. You're just assuming I'm going to do it. Assuming. Yeah. Hi. Okay, so I don't know how much of this Linda actually wants me to go over, but she said share the stuff that I shared in my lesson, so you might be getting more than you bargained for. Um, Anyway, uh, (laughs) I was asked to teach the lesson, and I basically spent the entire hour uh, talking about these three verses in Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30. It says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, interestingly enough, as I read through these, you know, I've read these verses probably hundreds of times in my life. They're very popular verses. But somehow uh, I got different meaning out of them this time than I have in the past. Uh, In fact, I realized I've probably been reading them wrong most of my life. Um, And I think I'm not the only one. Um, Even in the lesson, um, it says... The Savior taught, this is straight from Come Follow Me lesson, the the Sunday school uh, manual, says, the Savior taught that he will help us carry our burdens if we accept his invitation. And, I mean, I'm not saying he didn't teach that. Uh, I'm not going to contradict the manual. That seems like the straight way to apostasy. But I'm not 100% sure that he did teach that concept in these verses. It doesn't say come unto me and I'll help you carry your heavy burden or I'll make your burden light. He says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Then instead of saying, let me help you carry your burden, he actually says the opposite. He says, take upon you my yoke. In other words, help me carry my burden. He's not saying he's going to help us with our burden or make our burden light. He says, yeah, here we are carrying this heavy, heavy burden. He says, come unto me and uh, actually help me carry my burden. Um, and somehow that's supposed to give us rest. Um, and so I was actually thinking a lot about that. Um, how does that give us rest to help him carry his burden? And as I sat and pondered for most of the week uh, about that and about these verses, I found it helpful to ask four questions. Uh, The first question was, well, what are our labors and burdens? And then the next question was, what is Christ's yoke? What burdens was he called to bear? How do we take upon us Christ's yoke? And what are the blessings of being yoked with Christ? And so I'll try and talk real quick about each of these. So first, you know, what are our labors and burdens? You know, and I guess putting that in, you know, modern language, what are the things that are stressing us out? What are the things that feel heavy in our life? What's the work that we have to do? 
how are we feeling overwhelmed? And obviously, I think the answers are different for all of us. But, you know, I, I think that we all carry heavy burdens. Most people I know, you know, seem really busy. And a lot of times, you know, they're tired. Lynn and I joke about being tired all the time. It's like, oh, I, I feel so tired. But if I sleep more, well, I feel more tired. But if I sleep less, I still feel tired, you know. So it's like, what do we do? Well, Christ is inviting us to come unto him and to carry his burden. I love, um, really love what uh, Elder Bednar said in his talk um, that is, uh, I believe the talk is titled Bear Up Their Burdens with Ease. Uh, this is the that, that talk from General Conference where he tells the awesome story about his friend who um, wanted to buy the pickup truck and uh, finally convinced his wife to do it. And then he went out to prove how great of a truck it was. He went out to get some wood and he got stuck in the snow. And uh, not knowing what to do, he decided to go cut the wood that he was going to get. And then when he filled up the back of the truck with wood, the truck was actually able to go. And, you know, over and over, he says it was the load that enabled him. But in, in that talk, he says, each of us also carries a load. Our individual load is comprised of demands and opportunities, obligations and privileges, afflictions and blessings and options and constraints. Two guiding questions can be helpful as we periodically and prayfully as we periodically and prayerfully assess our load. Is the load I am carrying producing the spiritual traction that will enable me to press forward with faith in Christ on the straight and narrow path and avoid getting stuck? Is the load I am carrying creating sufficient spiritual traction so ultimately I can return home to Heavenly Father? Sometimes we mistakenly may believe that happiness is the absence of a load, but bearing a load is a necessary and essential part of the plan of happiness. Because our individual load needs to generate spiritual traction, we should be careful to not haul around in our lives so many nice but unnecessary things that we are distracted and diverted from the things that truly matter most. And so I love that. Um, It helps us kind of analyze, well, what are we carrying? But then he also points out that, you know, happiness is not the absence of a load. And perhaps that's why Christ doesn't offer to take away our load or make our load light. Instead, He says, take upon you my load, take upon you my yoke. Um, And as we do that, I think then we gain that spiritual traction. We gain perspective to see, are we carrying the right things? Um, And it helps us to better carry the load that we're given. Um, And essentially, I mean, if you think about it in the scriptures, when he called his disciples, he didn't offer to carry their load or make their load light. You know, I mean, when I think of when he called Peter and the fishermen, he demonstrated that he could easily make their load light, right? Like he showed them they were out fishing and caught nothing all night. And then, you know, he said, cast your net on the other side. And all of a sudden they were able to haul up more fish than their boat could hold, uh, showing them that like, hey, yeah, uh, I'm the best fisherman. I could make your job of fisherman really easy and help you to catch more fish than you even know what to do with. But but ultimately, that's not what he did for them. In fact, he said, you know, he asked them to leave their nets, leave their jobs and come follow him. Uh, literally saying, take upon you my load. And I don't think that's necessarily what he's asking us to do today. I don't think we're literally called to, you know, leave our jobs and uh, our families like his uh, apostles in the scriptures. Uh, but he does want us to take up his load 
and to at least temporarily leave behind some of the stresses and burdens that overwhelm us. And so if we're going to take upon us Christ's yoke, Christ's burden, um, then that takes us to the next question. What was he called to bear? What is his yoke? What are we being asked to take upon us? And so as I thought and pondered that, you know, the first thing that came to mind was, well, literally, he had to carry his cross. Um, you know, it was placed upon his shoulders and he had to take and carry that. And I think of the story in the scriptures of the man who stepped up to help him carry that cross when it became too much for him. That guy literally carried his load. And, you know, we know that what the cross represents. Um, I love the way it's expressed in Alma chapter 7. It says, And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things, nevertheless the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. So literally in these verses, it talks about all the things he took upon him. He took upon him our afflictions and temptations, our pains, our suffering. He took upon him death. He took upon him sin. I mean, when you think of it that way, it it does not sound like it's described in the scripture of being easy and light. Um, that load sounds actually somewhat dark and heavy as we think of all those things he was called to take upon him. And yet, all those things are what lead to our salvation and eternal life. And so, really, that load leads to our hope and our joy. And what burden could be lighter than that? You know, uh, without Christ, it is the dark and heavy burden of suffering and affliction and sin and temptation and death. And yet, it leads to light. It leads to hope. And I think sometimes, you know, when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Maybe it's not light as in the opposite of heavy, but light as in the light of God that brings us hope and joy. Um, in the scriptures, you know, it says, Christ, Christ said, um, you know, in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Um, and then almost in the same way that he invites us to carry his burden, he later, or in, in another place in the scriptures, he says, ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. You know, he's asking us to be, to reflect his light, to be that light, to help bring people unto, unto God. And so um, as we have that hope in Christ and that joy that comes from, from his overcoming that burden, we, uh, our, our burden becomes easy. Um, and, and we have that strength to bear it. And so, um, I think that, uh, 
that is the burden of Christ that he's calling us to bear. Um, his yoke is, is the same as the Father's. You know, in uh, Moses 139, he says, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And he's, he's inviting us to join him in that great and glorious work. Um, his burden is us. Um, and he's asking us to, to come and carry that with him, to join him in that work. So how do we take upon us Christ's yoke? Um, well, I think going back to uh, the scripture itself, uh, there's some clues right in there. He says, uh, right after he says, or I mean, before he even asks us, he says, come unto me. That's the first invitation. Come unto me. That's the first step. We have to come unto him um, so that he can give us rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. And the next invitation is learn of me. In order to take upon us his yoke, we have to learn of him. We have to understand him. We have to know him. And he immediately gives us uh, the first clue. He teaches, he says, learn of me. And then he teaches us about himself. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Um, and again, I, 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 I suspect, I have a sneaky suspicion that maybe these are some of Elder Bednar's uh, favorite verses, because he literally has two talks that I think are inspired by these verses. The first we talked about was uh, bear up your burdens with ease. And he talks about these burdens a lot, or these verses a lot. And then uh, he gave another talk called meek and lowly of heart, in which he quotes these verses a lot. And uh, I love what he says in meek of, and lowly in heart. He says, please note the characteristics the Lord used to describe himself in the following scripture. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Instructively, the Savior chose to emphasize meekness from among all the attributes and virtues he potentially could have selected. So he's saying, you know, Christ has all these things, and he, did, he chose to think of, of meekness. He says, a similar pattern is evident in a revelation received by the prophet Joseph Smith in 1829. The Lord declared, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Meekness is a defining attribute of the Redeemer and is distinguished by righteous responsiveness, willing submissiveness, and strong self-restraint. Um, in that talk, he goes on to describe the quality of meekness. He says the Christ-like quality of meekness is often misunderstood in our contemporary world. Meekness is strong, not weak, active, not passive, courageous, not timid, restrained, not excessive, modest, not self-aggrandizing, and gracious, not brass, not brash. A meek person is not easily provoked, pretentious, or overbearing, and readily acknowledges the accomplishments of others. Whereas humility generally denotes dependence on God and the constant need for his guidance and support, a distinguishing characteristic of meekness is a particular spiritual receptivity to learning both from the Holy Ghost and from people who may seem less capable, experienced, or educated, who may not hold important positions, or who otherwise may not appear to have much to contribute. Meekness is the principal protection from the prideful blindness that often arises from prominence, position, power, wealth, and adulation. And I just love that. So uh, we have to learn of him, and we have to learn how to be meek um, is one of the first steps to taking his yoke upon us. Um, we also have learned a ton from our current prophet about the importance of covenants and how covenants help us take upon us Christ's yoke. Um, when we covenant uh, through baptism, we're 
literally covenanting to, uh, as, as it says in, in Mosiah, to bear up one another's burdens that they may be light, to mourn with those who mourn, to comfort those in stand of need, to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. So we're making these covenants to do Christ's work. Um, and I love how Brother Wilcox talks about uh, covenants. Brother Brad Wilcox, um, he has a great talk where he talks about how people think that, uh, um, you know, they are, uh, Christ's atonement works by us, like doing all that we can. Um, we're supplementing what he did for us and and giving ourselves just enough extra that with his grace and our works, we can make it to heaven. And he says, we do not reach heaven by supplementing. We reach heaven by covenanting. And a covenant is not a cold contract between party A and party B, each doing his respective part. It is a warm relationship between two friends who are literally on a first name basis. Think of the temple. Each loving and working with each other, we make covenants at baptism and hands are extended to bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost to help us. We make covenants in the temple and a hand is extended to teach of teach us of Christ's willingness to strengthen and help us. President Cecil O. Samuelson said, it is that outreached hand that we call grace. And I love what the Bible dictionary says about grace. The main idea of the word is divine means of help or strength given through the bounteous mercy and love of Jesus Christ. And then later it says, grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to lay hold on eternal life and exaltation. Um, and so, you know, we, we achieve that grace or we receive that grace, I should say, receive that grace through covenants that we have made. President Nelson said, once you and I have made a covenant with God, our relationship with him becomes much closer than before our covenant. Now we are bound together, or you could say yoked together. Because of our covenant with God, he will never tire in his efforts to help us, and we will never exhaust his merciful patience with us. Each of us has a special place in God's heart. He has high hopes for us. So our covenants are how we take that yoke upon us. Um, and as we do, um, we have the opportunity, as the scriptures say, to be saviors on Mount Zion, right? We are literally doing uh, God's work um, as we go to the temple, as we help gather Israel, as we strive to love God and our neighbor, we're yoking ourselves with Christ. Um, as we labor all our days and bring but one soul unto Christ, we are taking his yoke upon us. Um, and so as we do that, what are the blessings? Well, uh, again, in the scriptures, he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Um, and I was thinking about rest uh, as I taught this lesson. We were actually doing a push-up challenge that Finn had found from some YouTuber. Uh, he wanted us to join him in doing this. And, you know, we wanted to support him in his righteous efforts. So we committed to do a thousand push-ups in five days, which was a lot harder than I thought. I wasn't in as good a shape as I've been maybe in the past. Um, we've been so sick this year that I hadn't done any push-ups at all. And, uh, man, it was hard. And there was a lot of times where I did push-ups until I literally could not do any more push-ups. And I was like, I, I don't think I can do this. I can't do any more push-ups. And yet, when I would take a break from doing those push-ups and rest, I would find that the next time I went to try and do push-ups, all of a sudden, I could do more push-ups. And so, I think the same thing applies to us. Christ is not taking away our burden. 
But as he gives us rest, we can take a break from that burden as we carry his. And then when we go back to carry ours, all of a sudden we have more strength. We have strength again because we've been able to rest and we can pick up our burden with new perspective and with new hope and light that comes from carrying Christ's burden. And all of a sudden our burden doesn't seem so bad. Or maybe we've realized that some of our burden is stuff we don't even need to carry. Like Brother Bednar said, we've, we've analyzed our load and realized, oh, some of these things in my load I can get rid of. Um, but it's our burdens that give us that spiritual traction. And that's why he doesn't take them away. Um, and so uh, that's one of the blessings. Uh, of course, that grace is another blessing. Um, and President Nelson taught, um, uh, quote, you come unto Christ to be yoked with him and with his power so that you're not pulling life's load alone. You're pulling life's load yoked with the savior and redeemer of the world. And suddenly your problems, no matter how serious they are, become lighter. And so really, I, I want to go back. I was not trying to contradict the lesson. As we are yoked with Christ, I truly do believe that we are strengthened and our burden becomes lighter. Um, but it's not taken away. Um, it's through pulling Christ's yoke that we receive that strength. And, and then what the lesson said, um, really does come true. And, and so maybe I haven't been reading it wrong. I just needed a a better path to get there. Um, so when the lesson says that he will help us carry our heavy burdens, if we accept our invitation, it is true. Um, but that help comes through first carrying his burden. And then, like in Mosiah, uh, the people of Alma, we read about um, their burdens becoming light. Well, the way they became light is that they received greater strength to carry those burdens. And so, anyway, this is kind of a long roundabout way to get to that, but it really gave me uh, a lot of additional um, insight and way to think about this scripture as I pondered, you know, um, what are my burdens that I'm carrying um, and what is Christ's yoke and his burdens and, and how do I take upon those or how do I take upon me his yoke and his burdens? Um, and then what are the blessings of, of doing that? Um, it really helped give me a lot of uh, greater understanding uh, to these verses. And I, I just bear my testimony that um, as we come unto Christ and take upon us his yoke and learn of him that uh, truly his yoke is easy and it will make, uh, and his burden is light, and that will make our burdens easy and light as we come unto him. Uh, we'll find greater joy uh, in our lives uh, as we seek to uh, help our fellow men uh, by by taking Christ's yoke upon us, um, that we'll find joy and, and peace in our life. And uh, that was a lot longer probably than Linda wanted, but I leave my testimony of these verses with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Wasn't that awesome? Commentary from Dad. Okay. So now we're going to read Luke 11 and finish up with Matthew 12. Okay. So let's see. Verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place... When he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us, this, give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also 
forgive everyone that is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil obviously the lord is not going to lead us into temptation um the joseph smith translations right here uh or sorry the there is a joseph smith translation for this say then verse five it says and he said unto them which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him friend lend me three loaves for a friend of mine is in his journey is come to me and i have nothing to set before him and he from within shall answer and say trouble me not the door is not is not shut and my children are with me in bed i cannot rise and give thee i say unto you though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. And seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he, he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And so in the Joseph Smith translation, it also says good gifts through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it seems like the disciples were watching Jesus pray and waited until he was finished and then asked, Lord, teach us to pray. So... Did they know how to pray? Or perhaps they didn't know how to pray like Jesus prayed. Jesus then taught them and used many of the same principles he taught during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verses known as the Lord's Prayer. These are the truths about prayer. He repeated at different times, and these are patterns for us today as well. When we pray, we should address God our Father. We should say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means holy, consecrated, greatly honored. Imagine how Jesus honored his Father in heaven. And imagine how he must have spoken to him while he prayed. That in That is how we should pray. Um, I love that. That that's how Jesus prays. Like, I think it's... Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that when we're praying that we are um, using respect. And I think that's what he was, he was showing here was respect and knowing who his father was or is um, helps him to understand, I guess, that he's there for him too. Also, it's snowing so hard outside and I'm like wow I'm so glad we're gonna go to Cancun next week (laughs) so mad about all this snow it's crazy okay anyways um then he says we are also to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven so we're to pray that God's will can be done as fully on earth as it is done in heaven so I think this also means that we want 
to align our will with God's will, that whatever that is, that we want to be okay with it and that we want to have added strength to accept it. And I think um, when you say that, that kind of helps, you know? Um, and then this other part, here's what's funny. I've, I feel like I've already said these things, but it's fine. Um, thy kingdom come, I thought was pretty awesome because thy kingdom come also means to me, like, I hope the second coming is tomorrow. (laughs) And I think that's true because I do. I really do. You know, sometimes I'm like, how much more do we have to do this for? Are we like, what, like, how much longer do we need to hold on? How much longer do we have to endure this? You know? And sometimes I feel that way. And sometimes I'm like, no, no, don't come yet. Don't come until like forever. <laughs> so I guess it just depends on <laughs> if it's really hard or really easy, right? Um, okay. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. So we're mortal and we have spiritual and temporal needs. So we will need all, like we have needs all the time, every day. And so praying for things that we need, right? And then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If we desire forgiveness from God, then we must forgive others. Um, But it's hard to forgive others. So it makes sense that the Lord would have us um, talk about forgiving others us as we forgive others because it's a reminder to us that we our job is to forgive first um so jesus emphasized that emphasized that forgiving others is inseparably linked to the forgiveness we seek for ourselves elder james e talmage he taught in this specification of personal supplication we are taught to expect only as we deserve and that's also in jesus the christ um and about the and lead us not into temptation. So Elder Talmadge taught the intent of the supplication appears to be that we be preserved from temptation beyond our weak powers to withstand, that we be not abandoned to temptation without the divine support that shall be as full a measure of protection as our exercise of choice will allow. End quote. Oh, I really like that. But then there's also this other um, quote from President or from Elder Holland. And I remember he said something like, um, how do we expect to be more like Christ? How do we expect to be more like him when we're praying for comfort, luxuries and ease? And it's like, yeah, you suffered all this for us, but can you just you know i want to i want to be as awesome as you but i don't want to go through anything at all that you went through nothing even close to that and we i don't want to suffer like you did but i want to be like you you know and that's basically like the gist of it i didn't say it in the way that he said it of course cuz he says it's so great cuz that's how elder holland is but it was basically that and it makes you realize like how do you expect to be like Christ if you go through no hardships at all? How do you expect to become more compassionate, more merciful, more anything 
when you don't choose or want to go through trials at all that you want ease luxury and comfort the whole way through but somehow on the other end you want to come out like christ and that's not going to be how it is because christ went through so much how can you be like somebody if you haven't experienced even a glimpse of what they experience right so it's just like don't don't expect that if that like you want to be like jesus but you don't want to do the you don't want to put in the work kind of thing so i guess you don't want to be like jesus that's what he's trying to say anyway i i should probably find the quote and uh put it in here that'd be nice but then i'd have to pause and stuff and anyway let's see and then we have um in the Joseph Smith translation um, adds that the important phrase to verse 5 and he said unto them your heavenly father will not fail to give unto you whatsoever ye ask of him and he spake a parable saying that is the introduction of this parable the truth that heavenly father will not fail to give unto you whatsoever ye ask of him and then Elder Talmadge, Elder James E. Talmadge again in Jesus the Christ, page 435 says, The Lord's lesson was that if man with all his selfishness and dis, distinct, disinclination to give will nevertheless grant what his neighbor with proper purpose asks and continues to ask in spite of objection and temporary refusal, with assured certainty will God grant what is persistently asked in faith and with righteous intent no parallelism lies between man's selfish refusal and god's wise and beneficent beneficent waiting there must be a consciousness of real need for prayer and real trust in god to make prayer effective and in mercy the father sometimes delays the granting that the asking may be more fervent and yesterday i heard something on don't miss this and somebody said that they ended up going to japan or something and they got stuck there through covid and so it was kind of super hard and they didn't want to be there anymore and it was just that they went there for something anyway um that it was so hard and then they were talking to them and they were saying how it was so hard but that they miss how close they were with the savior at that time because isn't that the truth like when we're having a hard time we're seeking that time with the with the lord even more than we normally would and that's why i chose to do this momentary because i i wanted to keep me close to the savior and 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 that's what it does and it's a reminder if it wasn't something like a goal that i had set out to do then i wouldn't i probably wouldn't even read it and it's really sad but i'm glad that i've been doing it okay we're at matthew 12 1 to 3 now okay at that time jesus went on the sabbath day through the corn and his disciples were on were unhungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat 
But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye need, or have ye not read what David did when he was unhungered, and they that were with him? And so that um, there's a reference right there. So they were basically accusing the disciples of breaking the Sabbath, but um, then the Lord was referencing what David did, and this is and David David's account is found in 1 Samuel 21, 6. Anyway, and let's keep going. And how he entered into the house of God and did eat the shewbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. And he's talking about Jesus because he's with them, right? But if I, if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Okay, so some commentary from Redhead Hostess here says that in verse 24, Uh, we learned that it was the Sabbath day and all types of rules had been added to the oral law in order to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? That there were laws that people made up and that people were the ones who were trying to uh, help enforce it, which now is totally different. We don't have people coming to us knocking on our door. Hey, we saw you guys doing this on the Sabbath. I don't think that's cool. So that's nice that they don't do that. Um, on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples walked through the cornfield. The original word for corn here is wheat or barley. The disciples walked through and rubbed the grain in their hands to separate the grain from shaft and would eat it. This was a common practice that was allowed by law. <sighs> there were Pharisees watching them, and Pharisees held the oral law to be equal to the written law. These Pharisees accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath. The oral law had placed restrictions against reaping and threshing on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees considered rubbing the grain in the hands an act of threshing or removing the grain from the surrounding shaft. Jesus answered the charge against his disciples by pointing out what David had once done. Which King David and his men were hungry, they went into the tabernacle and ate the shewbread there. The shewbread consisted of twelve loaves of unleavened cakes. Um, placed in the tabernacle each Sabbath at the end of the week. Oh. Excuse me. At the end of the week, when new loaves were placed where the loaves were, the priests would eat the removed loaves. So it was like seven-day-old bread. Shoe bread, by law, was only for the priests. But when David and his men were hungered and the priests were only going to eat the bread ceremonially, the bread was given to David and his men. Then Jesus added a greater reason why no law was being broken. Also, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He had authority to know if the Sabbath was truly being defiled, and these Pharisees did not have that authority. So, I loved, I loved this because 
the the whole thing of of the Sabbath is to come closer to Christ, right? It's just a way to honor him more and to be with him more. And the disciples were with Jesus. Like literally, how could they even break it, right? Because he was with them. And I always love, I always love this because it helps me understand what the Sabbath is about. It's not about like if you're making dinner and if you're um, doing things like that. It's about being with the Savior, about being with God. Oh, man, it's so sleepy. In their zeal to keep the Sabbath day holy. Oh, this is from the Come Follow Me individual. Uh, Come Follow Me for individuals and families. Um, this quote, okay, quote, in their zeal to keep the Sabbath day holy, the Pharisees had implemented strict rules and man-made traditions, which eventually clouded their understanding of the true purpose of the Sabbath day. End quote. It's so true. Um, and then President Russell M. Nelson said, quote, when I had to make a decision whether or not an activity was appropriate for the Sabbath, I simply asked myself, what sign do I want to give to God? That question made my choices about the Sabbath day crystal clear, end quote. Yeah. What sign are we giving God about how we're spending our time? Well, I think I'm going to have to jump on the treadmill. <laughs> okay, and then let's see, verse 9. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue this is still on the Sabbath day. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? So this is the Pharisees, of course. And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And of it, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then? is a man better than a sheep. Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith the, he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched forth, stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Are you kidding me? Those guys, dude, they're like real crazy. Um... And then in verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and a great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. So he did not want people to know about his healings, of course. But now he's gonna, because there's so many of them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till, the send, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So that was Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. Okay, so some more 
info here. Here we see the true desire of the scribes and Pharisees. They went to the synagogue where Jesus was teaching. Um, but like they didn't go so that they could witness awesome miracles and be converted or anything like that. They just tried to catch people in their stuff. Like, like in their sin. They're just trying to catch people in their sin. Like how did people even let that kind of group like like get so popular you know like have so much power and get so popular anyways okay let's see okay so they went to the synagogue where jesus was teaching and there was a man there with a withered hand such an affliction would have had great impact on this man's life and instead of hoping that this man could be healed they were seeing his healing as a way to accuse jesus of breaking the sabbath um, all this was to help discredit Jesus and stop him from gaining so many followers. The Pharisees were so fanatical about the Sabbath that even helping the sick was a violation of the Sabbath. Wow. In verse 8, we see that Jesus knew of their conspiring plan, for he knew their thoughts and he was not hindered. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, then taught that the Sabbath day is to do good. And then he healed the man. No physical labor was performed, and all that had to be done was for the man to stretch forth his withered hand. So rather than rejoicing in the great miracle that the scribes and Pharisees could see, it filled them with madness and ignored, ignored the act of God that they had just witnessed, discussed with one another what they were going to do with Jesus, and decided that they needed to... Um, that they needed to go, like, catch him or whatever, you know, and destroy him, right? He says, held a council against him how they might destroy him. What? Gotta be kidding me with that. Um, okay, and then it appears that there were Gentiles among the great multitudes and perhaps some that were healed because Matthew mentions the prophecy from Isaiah that teaches that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. Those who were witnessing the Messiah for themselves could have been some of the first Gentile converts. Verses 18 to 21 is Isaiah's prophecy that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. Verse 18 is speaking about Jesus. Verse 19 speaks of Jesus' character as he preaches the gospel. He is not loud. He is meek and gentle. The verse, then verse 20 illustrates how gentle and skilled Jesus is with those he is teaching. Um, and a reed, a tall plant that grows in water or, mar or marshy ground that is bruised is extremely fragile. This represents someone who is weak or frail. Christ will be so gentle that he will not break them. If a person is like a smoking flax, which is a wick that has nearly gone out, he will be skillful enough that he will not quench their light. He will be this way until he can make the gospel victorious. His gospel victorious. That is so neat. Okay. Now we're reading Matthew twelve twenty two to 37. Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub. And 
the prince of the devils. So that was like Satan's name. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to destruction, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if Beelzebub casts out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out the devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else... How can ye can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except for the first except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house he that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad <laughs> I like saying this to the to the boys um that if you're not helping you're hindering you know, don't be a hinder. Like, don't slow processes down. Don't be the one that is keeping progress from moving forward, right? But be a help instead of a hinder. Help things move along. Help things get done. Help things. Help the family, okay? Uh, and then... Things can happen when that happens. Okay, so so it's just like Jesus, you know. If you're against him, you're not gathering, but you're scattering. Because <laughs> his most, the most important work we know that President Nelson told us is the gathering of Israel. That is the most important work. Okay, uh, Matthew mentions the time when Jesus cast the devil out of the man. When he did, all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? which means that they were wondering if he was the Messiah. Jewish leaders were there to immediately cast doubt in the people's mind by instead accusing Jesus of using the power of the devil to cast out devils. Jesus, able to discern the thoughts of the scribes and Pharisees, gave an answer to this accusation. So, talking about if a kingdom is divided against itself, how can it stand? The same is with Satan. So in verse 28, Jesus explained why and how men can cast out devils. This is a Joseph Smith translation for verse 28 that gives the, this complete reading of verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come to, unto you. For they also cast out devils by the Spirit of God. For unto them is given power over devils, that they may cast them out. Okay. Yeah, and that's powerful right there. So Jesus used the fact that he was able to cast out devils to prove that the kingdom of God was indeed upon the earth and that it is the spirit of God that casts out devils, not the power of the devil. Jesus then gave the parable of entering into a strong man's house and taking his goods. Um, therefore, Jesus was not in league with the devil, but he was overcoming him. He was binding him. Satan was a strong man. But Jesus is stronger is a stronger man going into territory Satan has claimed and casting out devils. So President Joseph Fielding Smith says, Those in this life who gain a perfect knowledge of the divinity of the gospel cause a knowledge that comes only by revelation from the Holy Ghost and who then link themselves with Lucifer and come out in open rebellion also become sons of perdition. End quote. Oof. Then uh, teachings of Joseph Smith, 
says, quote, all sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost for Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens open unto him and know God, then uh, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him. Oh, isn't that intense? It's pretty intense. And um, I like that. Sorry, adjusting. I like that. That he talks about the strong man and um, he gives the strong man's parable and that Jesus Christ is giving that parable and that he is binding Satan. And in some other scriptures in the Book of Mormon, it talks about that Satan, or maybe it's not in the Mormon. Anyway, I think it's there. Um, that Satan will be bound in the last days and that, you know, he won't be able to tempt anybody, right? And and for so long, I remember thinking, man, that's going to be a sweet day when Satan gets bound with, like, chains and God's going to not let him do anything. <laughs> and then recently, you know, I've been learning. I don't know how recently, a few years, I don't know. Um, I've been realizing that it's the work that we do and how we allow God in our lives and how we use his power that will bind him in our lives. We can start the millennium in our in our lives right now by binding Satan. And that's how we know the millennium has started because he will be bound. And, um, and I love that because helps me know that it's something that I control. And if it's something that I can control, then why wouldn't I want to do that sooner rather than later, right? And then it's like, if I can control that, then what do I need to do to make that happen in my life? Um, and I love, I love the thought of that. And I can't remember where I read that or who specifically said that. Uh, but but I thought it was powerful. And so the fact that Jesus here is giving us the parable of the strong man helps us to know that first we must bind Satan and then we can ruin his kingdom. And I think we have to bind Satan in our own lives before we can start to help other people learn how to do the same. Because how do we ruin his kingdom is by uh, sharing what we've learned with other people. But if we can't bind him in our own lives first, how do we know that anything is working anyway so but we can use um the power of jesus christ in our lives to bind him so what are you doing in your life to bind satan what are you doing that is um bringing the power of god into your life more so that you can do that so that you're capable of doing that okay okay verse 31 wherefore i say unto you all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Neither make the tree good, 
Oh, okay, hold on. We're going to stay stay there for a minute. Um, another quote about denying the Holy Ghost. Um, it's from the Joseph Smith translation. It says, But he who denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Now his disciples knew that he said this because they had spoken evil against him before the people, for they were afraid to confess him before men. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, He knoweth the, he knoweth our hearts, and he speaketh to our condemnation, and we shall not be forgiven. But he answered them and said unto them, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, and repenteth, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him who blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. So that's the Joseph Smith translation. Um from Luke chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. Okay, so now 33. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good tide, good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by the word, or for by the words they shall be justified, and by the words shall thou shalt be condemned. Okay. So remember that this time the scribes and Pharisees were seeking to accuse Jesus of using his power of the devil. Jesus then said that they're vipers and they were evil ones. And you could see, oh, and that you could see the, if they were evil or not just by their fruits and their words. Um, then Jesus warned them that every idle word that we speak shall give account thereof in the last day or the judgment day. That's sad because I'm pretty sure I have a lot of pointless words <laughs> like i've said so many idle words um he says idle can also be translated to careless thoughtless unprofitable and injurious so that's interesting notice what president um david omakay taught he said every idle word that men shall speak they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment that's the scripture right as a boy, I questioned that truth when I first heard it expressed by my father. I remember saying to myself, not even the Lord knows what I'm thinking right now. I was very much surprised, therefore, when later, as a student in the university, I read the following in William James's Psychology about the effect of thought and action on human character. I quote, quote it for the young people particularly. <laughs> Uh, spinning our own fates we are spinning our own fates good or evil and never to be undone every smallest stroke of virtue or of vice leaves its never so little scar the drunken rip van winkle in jefferson's play excuses himself for every fresh der dereliction by saying i won't count this time it won't count or I won't count this time. Well, he may not count it. And the kind 
heaven may not count it, but it is being counted nonetheless. Down among his nerve cells and fibers, the molecules are counting it, registering and storing it up to be used against him when the next temptation comes. Nothing we'll ever do, or nothing we ever do is in strict scientific literalness wiped out. Of course, this has its good side as well as its bad one. As we become permanent drunkards by so many separate drinks, so we become saints in the in the moral and authorities and experts in the practical and scientific spheres by so many separate acts and hours of work. End quote. Wow, you might need to read you might need to replay that just to be sure you got it. But it's basically like you know, everything is going into our um into our buckets, right? Into our reserve of, hey, are we following Jesus Christ or are we choosing not to? Um, okay, verse 38 of Matthew 12. Here we go. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a... We would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Who's greater than Jonas? Jesus, right? The queen of the south, or queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here, Jesus. And when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through the dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he shall, he saith, then he saith, I will return unto my house from whence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Oof. Okay, some quotes, or a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. He says, those who are adulterous have also a strong preference for now rather than for eternity. Impatience and incontinence quite naturally team up. Such erring individuals and generations have also a strong preference for meeting the needs of me over attending to others, a lifestyle which speeds selfishness and on its endless empty journey. By making demands of God, the proud would attach conditions to their discipleship, but discipleship requires of us unconditional surrender to the Lord. And that's on Sermons Not Spoken, page 58 to 59. 
from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. Okay, we could keep going on everything, but we're going to keep reading. Okay, and now we're back to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 36. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass that when the devil was gone, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub. So we're basically reading the same things that are happening from in Matthew, found in Matthew, and now in Luke. And he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against its, a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, shall they be your judges? But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armeth... Okay, so this is the strong man one. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in place. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that is he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none, or finding none, it saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when the when he cometh, he forbid he findeth it swept and, gar and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man's and the last state of that man is worse than, than the first. And it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, ye rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And then this is called, that woman was called a certain woman. <laughs> And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. So I think it's interesting. You know, we know that in the Book of Mormon, um, Laman and Lemuel saw so many, oof, so many signs, and they never were converted. I think that is different. When you're seeking a sign that way, because you don't, because you're not converted, you're seeking a sign, and then the Lord is not going to send you a sign because you're seeking, you're not actually going to be converted by, by, witnessing a sign, but that you need to already be converted, and then your faith can make you whole. See, like, the Lord didn't want just to be putting on a show for people; He was trying to bring more people um to god he was trying to convert people because that was what he was there to do because pretty sure he could have put on a sweet show had he um really wanted to do that okay and then 
Sister Linda K. Burton talked about this certain woman, which I really like this quote. So it says, I have read and passed over the seemingly unremarkable expression, certain woman, numerous times before. But recently, as I pondered more carefully, those words seem to jump off the page. Consider these synonyms of one meaning of the word certain as connected to faithful, certain women. Convicted, positive, confident, firm, def definite, assured, and dependable. End quote. This is Linda K. Burton, April 2017 General Conference. The Greek word for certain used here only means a particular person or object, but the insight of Sister Burton is still worthwhile once we consider what was happening. This woman was willing to lift up her voice with praise while others were using their voices to discredit Jesus and sp speak lies about him. Imagine her bravery to choose not to keep quiet in that moment. And because of that, now this moment is forever recorded in the book of life, uh, in the book of Luke. Mm, I do like that idea. You got to speak up. Okay. Um, let's see. So when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say this evil generation, they seek signs and they shall not and shall not sign be given it. But the sign of Jonas, the prophet for Jonas was in was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. So, because Christ is going to be resurrected in three days, so it's going to be like a big witness to them. And the Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon solomon and behold a greater than solomon is here so he's talking about jesus and the men of nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation shall condemn it for they repented at the preaching of jonas and behold a greater than jonas is here of course jesus and no man when he hath lighted a candle putteth in a secret place neither under a bushel but on a candlestick that they which come in may see the light the light of the body is the eye therefore when when thine eye is single, thy whole body is also full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Okay, so... We have the light came and the Jews chose darkness. Light came into the world, but men chose darkness rather than light. Therefore, the light that was in them became darkness. The Jewish nation became abandoned to hardness of heart and unbelief. They were left to be the prey to that spirit of unbelief, which they encountered until they rejected God, until they rejected the Son of God, which all his divinity with his great miracles and his mighty power with pure with his pure and spotless life they rejected him they slew him and they and the light that was in them became darkness that's uh elder george q cannon journal of discourses isn't that crazy they had christ in their midst i can't even can't even uh but they were so by the letter so by the letter I would not have done well there <laughs> in those times. 
I would have for sure been seeking seeking Jesus. Um, okay, Matthew twelve forty six to fifty. Well, and I think I need to switch positions. Okay, we are in a new position. We're gonna walk this time. I like to make sure I'm giving the Lord like good time and good undivided time. And sometimes when I'm running or walking and stuff, um, I, I don't feel like I'm giving him that kind of time. And so I feel like I'm just trying to do all my things and then fitting him in. And so, um, but now I'm just doing this so that I can stay awake. Otherwise then my time with him ends abruptly. <laughs> but we only have a little bit left, so we're going to finish it. Um, okay, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand up without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So he was saying, who's the family of Christ? So um, here is a quote, but um, it's from Elder M.F. Cowley. And he said this to the saints in 1903 on becoming the family of Christ. Um, Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Maybe you forsook your father and mother. Maybe they turned your backs or turned their backs upon you. What if they did? You have come to this land and found fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, just as the son of God said to his disciples, one came unto him and said, Behold thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. And he asked, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? Answering the question himself, he pointed to his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And have you not found it thus? What else can we say? Why this, that the man who forsakes his father and mother for the gospel's sake has accepted something in the gospel that will bring his father and mother his sister and brother to him and they will fulfill the words of the prophet obadiah that saviors shall come upon on mount zion end quote okay and sometimes i think in our callings we are called to forsake our brothers mothers kids and whatever we sacrifice some time that we have with them um, to bring forth the kingdom of God here on the earth, to gather Israel. Sometimes we are called to serve outside of our home. And then it feels like we are forsaking all of them for other family members, right? Because we're sacrificing. And if we think about it, we're sacrificing our time with some family for other family, right? And it's all about the balance, right? Sometimes you're going to have sacrificing more time for your spirit families members in the ward and sometimes you'll sacrifice those family members for the family members that you have at home because you want to spend time with them so um sometimes it's just going to depend on where you are choosing to serve who you sacrifice right 
And so sometimes when I forget to um, put balloons on people's doors, it's because I'm spending time with my own family. And sometimes I put balloons on people's doors and I'm sacrificing time with my family. So it just depends on what's happening. Like for example, today we are going to be setting up the Easter celebration and it's gonna be amazing. And we're gonna sacrifice a lot of time and, but our whole family is going to sacrifice for the whole family, right? So we're just all going to be there from three on. Anyway, so, but a little bit sooner than now, we can, we're going to go to a baptism. Okay, so here we go. Luke eleven thirty-seven to 48. We're so close. And as he spake to a certain Pharisee, besought, whoops, and as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. Sorry. Um, and when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but with inward part is full of ravening and wickedness? Ye fools did not he that made that which is without, make that which is within also. But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. And woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. And woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for ye are as groves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saith, Thou reproachest us, reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye do, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Okay. A lot of this is very confusing to me. So, um, here, Jesus is talking about the darkness of the Jewish nation. And a Pharisee asked him to come to dinner with him. And Jesus sent and sat down to meet. Um, it is possible that this Pharisee had ill intentions and wanted to seek to trap and or confound Jesus while avoiding public embarrassment if they failed. So one of the Pharisaic rituals was to go through a ceremonial washing before he ate. And really strict Jews would wash between each course. However, Jesus did not participate in the washing and the Pharisee marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. So Jesus then used this situation to rebuke this and all Pharisees. While great effort has gone into cleaning their dishes, no effort has, gone, has been made in cleansing their souls. Oh, see, there it is. Their efforts were all outward. They only cared about the appearance of the righteous. So in verse 41, instead of going to the effort to appear clean and pure, give the very food that these dishes hold to the poor, then you would be, then you will be clean in the eyes of God. 
So then Jesus gave a series of woes to the Pharisees to be careful to pay tithes upon small things such as small herbs. And the Lord highlighted the irony that they will pay tithes on the smallest of things while not loving their neighbors and instead pass constant judgments against them. It is not wrong for them to pay the tithing on the herbs, but they left the more important things undone. So President Howard W. Hunter in April 1964 General Conference, he said the principle of tithing should be more than a mathematical, mechanical compliance with the law. The Lord condemned the Pharisees for mechanically tithing herbs without coming into the circumference of spirituality. If we pay our tithes because of our love for the Lord in complete freedom and faith, we narrow our distance from him and our relationship to him becomes intimate. We are released from the bondage of legalism and we are touched by the spirit and feel a oneness with God, end quote. So Jesus identified their true desires, which were pride, position, and recognition, not in being clean and pure before God. Okay. So, and then in 45 to 48, the lawyers were experts on Jewish law and were an honored and distinguished group. The lawyer was wondering if what Jesus just said to the Pharisees also applied to them. And Jesus affirms that, yes, these laws also are deserving of rebuke. The lawyers would add to the oral law each year, which caused greater and greater burden upon the people. Yet they often themselves avoided these heavy burdens. They feigned religious devotion by repairing and attending to the sepulchers or burial monuments of the prophets whom their fathers killed. But they have the same attitudes as their fathers, for they rejected John the Baptist and were at the time rejecting the Messiah himself. So their deeds show that they approve of what their fathers have done. Wow. I didn't ever know that about that. That parable right there. The cleansing of the of the dishes, but not cleansing of our souls. Okay. Luke eleven, forty nine to fifty four. Okay, this is the last of it. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. And woe, or not and, just woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him, and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Ah, these guys. So, then Jesus testified that God sends prophets and apostles to the earth, and that some of them will be slain by the Jews who will reject their message. But this particular generation of Jews had an even greater responsibility so that the blood of all prophets will be required at their hands. This is what Joseph Smith taught. Quote, he says, Hence it was... That so great a responsibility rested upon the generation in which our Savior lived, as they possessed greater privileges than any other generation, not only pertaining to themselves, but to their death. Their sin was greater as they not only neglected their own salvation, but that of their progenitors, and hence their blood was required at their hands. End quote. 
Joseph Smith found in Joseph Smith papers, 761. Then Jesus gave final woe in verse 40, uh, 52, condemning the lawyers. And he said um, <clears throat> that the <laughs> condemned the lawyers for taking away the key of knowledge, which had hindered the ability for the Jews to receive light and truth. There is a Joseph Smith transition for these verses that makes verse 52 read this way. Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge, the fullness of the scriptures. Ye enter not in yourselves into the kingdom and those who were entering in ye hindered. So bold so there's some bolded words here. You can't see them, obviously. But make sure you go into the Joseph Smith translation for uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 52, because you will get to see the differences and maybe make a note in your papers. Because um, it says the fullness of the scriptures. So remember, it was these people who were the ones that needed to translate the scriptures. And so when they translated them for us, they didn't include all the good stuff. They included some stuff, a lot of the stuff, but they took things out, which changed things. And so, which makes us rely more heavily on the spirit, which, you know, in some cases is obviously better, but also means that some people were hindered in their ability to be able to come into the kingdom of God because the scriptures were so messed up. Anyway, so President Alan H. Oaks quoted this scripture and taught that they were rejecting revelation, right? Because when you change revelation like that, you're rejecting the revelation. So he says, and this is a long quote, so get ready. I will say end quote to make sure you know where I'm ending. Quote, I have seen some persons attempt to understand or undertake to criticize the gospel or the church by the method of reason alone, unaccompanied by the use of recognition of revelation. When reason is adopted as the only or even the principal method of judging the gospel. The outcome is predetermined. One cannot find God or understand his doctrines and ordinances by closing the door on the means he has prescribed for receiving the truths of his gospel. That is why gospel truths have been corrupted and gospel ordinances have been lost when left to the interpretation and sponsorship of scholars who lack the authority and reject the revelations of God. That is what the Savior told his professional critics, as recorded in the 11th chapter of Luke. He was confronted by a group who had hypocritically built monuments to the prophets their predecessors had murdered while personally rejecting the living prophets God was sending them. In what I understand to be the condemnation of their rejection of the revelation, the Savior pronounced woe upon these worldly professionals, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered, unto, ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering ye hindered. In our day, we are experiencing an explosion of knowledge about the world, whoops, about the world and its people, but the people of the world are not experiencing a comparable explosion of knowledge about God and his plan for his children. On that subject, what the world needs is not more scholarship and technology, but more righteousness and revelation. That's good. I long for the day prophesied by Isaiah, when the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord. In an inspired utterance, the prophet Joseph Smith described the Lord's pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. This will not happen for those whose hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men. 
those who fail to learn and use principles of righteousness will be left to themselves to kick against those in authority, to persecute the saints and to fight against God. In contrast, the Lord makes this great promise to the faithful. The doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. End quote. I love that. That is so powerful. That's from President Alan H. Oaks, April 8, uh, 1989, 1989 General Conference. And it's just those promises that we are able to get from the Lord. Um, that the priesthood shall distill upon our soul as the dews from heaven. And that priesthood is the power of God on earth. I love that. Um, okay, so the scribes and Pharisees and lawyers didn't receive the rebuke, but instead began to urge themselves to provoke him to speak of many things. Another way to put this is that they began bombarding Jesus with questions with the intention of seeking to catch something of his mouth that they might accuse him. So they were laying traps for him while he was at his house while he was in their house that would be like that just feels like hey you're inviting somebody in and you're just going to be attacked you know and and that's just sad like are you inviting people like that like are you inviting people to do that to them like just don't even like if you're not going to be on their team just don't invite them over don't that's like being a bully right there don't be one of those okay because they were just lying wait for him to catch him. And the Greek meaning to catch literally means to hunt. So they were like bringing him in. Obviously, the Savior can hold his own. But when we do that to other people, they can't. They, they cannot, you know, see that. The Savior knew that, what they were doing, of course. He could see the intent of their hearts. But... When we do that to other people, they can't see that we're doing that. So just leave people alone. If you don't like them or if you don't like what they say or if you don't, you know, don't be a bully and invite them over or bring them into your group and then make fun of them and try to trap them for things because that's not good. Just don't associate with them at all. Okay, thanks for showing up and we are all done. I love you and be spending time with you later.